Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's coming up to one minute past four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time. It's Jan Bartlett and I'm here till four o'clock, six o'clock. It's four o'clock now. I'll be here till six. Today, the history series continues with author and historian Brian McKinlay, and he'll be looking at the second revolution in Russia in 1917, and this one in October. An update on the situation for Tamils in Sri Lanka, 10 years since the end of the Civil War. I'll be speaking to Aaron, who presents the Tamil Manifest program on Saturdays at 3CR. Why antibiotics don't work and what we can do to replace them? Retired research chemist Coral Winter has an answer. The president of MAPWA, the Medical Association for the Prevention of Wars, their monthly report, Margaret, Dr Margie Beavis will be talking about the results of the Royal Commission in South Australia on the nuclear issue, the budget, protection of health workers in war zones and nuclear weapons talks in Geneva. And Ali Abamina, who got here to Australia very on the skin of his teeth, the the federal government wouldn't give him a visa. He's um, the co-founder of Electronic Intifada and he was guest speaker at a symposium here in Melbourne last month and we're presenting his talk today. But first of all, Mr Kevin Healy, and he's had another one of those weeks. A week, Jane Lister, when day after day some caring business class think tank or other tells us all evidence goes to the only beneficiaries of tax cuts for the rich being the poor, the ingrate poor, like young unemployed. Uh, yes, have you made the dollar more livable? We asked big economic supremo, scuttle them more lash son. Well, yes and no. We have cut the doll and and all pensions and welfare payments for that matter, but only because these bludgers on the public good were whooping it up on a subsidy for the evil, destroying society, raising electricity prices a millionfold, carbon tax. In other words, stealing a subsidy for something that doesn't exist. And let's hope the socialists don't win, or we'll all see our electricity prices increase a millionfold, and society will end, and doll bludgers will get back a subsidy they don't deserve. Uh, But yes, because we are giving thousands to caring employers for taking on the lazy doll bludgers as interns. Is that to compensate them for the pay these young people will receive for working for them? Good God, no, it's a handout for not paying them, for taking them on out of the goodness of their cash registers. Why are they called interns? Because after a caring employer receives the first handout, she or he or it will then get another worker in turn for whom she or he or it will receive more thousands and then in turn after that worker, she or he or it will... Right, Scott, or them, got it. 
Uh, yes, but wait, there's more. If one of these caring employers ever does actually employ the young bludger, then we will also pay the wage bill. All this will add millions to the social welfare bill, even allowing for the cuts they'll actually receive, showing just how much we care about the doll bludgers. Still, when it's a choice of starvation or security, we can be sure the penurious would much rather starve, knowing they are safe, secure. So, on budgets, these submarines, 50 billions worth, and I suggest growing. Any wonder those welfare budgets have to starve. Yet the bottomless depths to which the socialists will descend was exposed after big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull very sensibly discovered the solution to young people finding houses housing unaffordable. It's so simple when we think about it. Their parents can buy them a house. So simple, it's a wonder someone else didn't think of it years ago, but it also shows just how brilliant, how lateral a thinker our big supremo is, and yet what thanks did he get from the socialists for solving a major problem many had thought intractable. Scorn. Sneering socialist scorn. Allegations he was removed from reality, didn't know how the other half lived. Well, the other 90% or more lived. Politics of envy claims that most parents not only couldn't afford to buy their kids a house, but many couldn't even afford one themselves. Have we ever heard such commie rot? An underhand way, I suggest, of the socialists continuing these surreptitious attacks on Christian marriage, on the true Christian family, attacks, uh, attacks on true marriage between a man and a woman, but thankfully scuttle them spread to Malcolm's defence. Class warfare will ruin us. He was very upset. True blue Aussies are over. Class warfare. Well, nothing could be more obvious than stating that many, many, many parents wouldn't be able to buy their kids a house is as nasty politics of envy, class warfare, as we could imagine. And Malcolm and Scuttle them, long-term opponents of class warfare, long-term aware that caring employers and lazy avaricious workers have identical interests, saw right through it. When we reported last week that young U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world cannon fodder in Iraq declaring, we are fighting for everybody on behalf of the world, we were thankful there's no brainwashing in the free world. That's restricted to the terrorists who hate liberty, freedom and democracy on the specious grounds that we keep invading and slaughtering them. We've become accustomed to the tragic reporting of any cream of true blue Aussie youth, brave young man or woman in uniform. Think they've all been men so far. Life of the party loves their family and dear little children. Trained killer, trained killed by the ingrates we invade who should be out on the streets cheering us, stewing, strewing our paths with flowers. Using the owl, the third person a bit loosely listener there, but national tragedy, coffins unloaded, mournful dirges, the warmongers who send them, expressing their sympathy at the farewell. But a young 24-year-old true blue Aussie was killed in Iraq last week. And the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, sympathetic, what a tragedy report, all over P1 Thursday. Cop that! Airstrike kills Aussie Jihad Chief! Then screaming headline, Hellfire Justice! Australia's most wanted terrorist, Melbourne-born Neil Prakash, has been obliterated in an American airstrike in Iraq. 
and it went on to say how wonderful it was that a 20-something sister of a terrorist had also been killed by a US of airstrike in Syria. These young people whose deaths we celebrate are obviously the sour cream of Troublawazi youth, craven young men and women not in uniform. And even better news in the whopping sin this morning, his wife and baby were also obliterated by the US of good guy trained killers. And fleeing those areas... As the no proper papers queue jumping illegal boat people whom Troubler was he policy prevents from drowning in the ocean, drown instead in misery on terra firma, emphasis on terror, our great humanitarian minister for concentration camps raise a wire and sink the boats, Peter Duffer made the same connection. Terror, you said it. These people are, you know, like terrorists and they are being driven to suicide and desperate measures by the, you know, long-haired, commie, greenie, wooden work at an iron, black armband, goody-goodies who egg them on and, you know, like, incite them. These terrorists, these illegal people whose lives we have saved, would live contentedly in the Manus Island Paradise Holiday Resort and the Nauru Tropical Holiday Resort and the, you know, Christmas Island Home Away From Home Holiday Resort if it wasn't like for these goody-goodies who lack our humanity interfering and, and not letting them get on with their lives. It was cruel, inhumane, Peter said, to give false hope to people who had no hope. These goody-goody, black-armed, anti-Trublowazi traitors are abusing the most basic principles of human rights by allowing these people, uh, well, in many ways these non-people, to believe they just may have some human rights. Peter also said Trublu Aussie would assist the PNG government to carry out the Supreme Court decision, even though this and the Manus Island Paradise Holiday Resort have absolutely nothing to do with Trublu Aussie. Uh, yes, the, the court said the Manus Island Detention Centre, correction, the Manus Island Paradise Holiday Resort, or whatever, said it must be closed forthwith. Pete, what's your definition of forthwith? Uh, my word, it sounds like Pete's on top of that one. We're now in caretaker mode in which the government cannot make appointments or decisions, for instance, or at least without consultation. So what luck at the end of last week, just before we went into coal holiday uh, caretaker mode. Remember the government sacked the Disability Rights Commissioner Graham Innes more than two years ago because he dared do his job and suggest the government policy left just a bit to be desired. And what do you know? More than two years without a commissioner specific to disability issues and then the urgency suddenly struck. The very day before caretaker mode, new commissioner. No reflection on him, but interesting timing, especially given same day, new Reserve Bank Governor appointed. Same day, new Reserve Bank Director appointed. Caring business class long-term appointments locked in. Oh, and the new Reserve Bank Director, that great fan of the dear baby Jesus, Ian Harpoon the Poor. Remember, Ian was the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo back in the last Dark Ages appointment to decide on the minimum wage every year, who told us he asked Jesus to advise him what was good for the lowest of low paid.
which I'm sure they appreciated, and evil unions could not have, well, should not have, criticised Leon's deliberations with heaven because it was what Jesus wanted. And indeed, Ian won the Christian Book of the Year a couple of years back with his exciting tome, Economics for Life. A must-read, we'd agree. And he's also produced that unmissable tome, Christian Theology and Market Economics, summed up by the Christian compassion showed by the filthy bloated rich. The dear baby Jesus said, the poor shall be always with you, and we as dedicated Christians would not question the words of the dear baby, must make sure the poor shall be always with us. Anyway, finally, we should rush out and buy that one in the comfort of knowing future Reserve Bank decisions will be based on praying that the praying can go on. Good afternoon. And again, we thank Mr Kevin Healy for his week that was. Continuing our series of interviews with historian and author Brian McKinlay, looking at the early 20th century. And today I'm going to follow up the earlier episodes of this saga, if that's the word, about the First World War. And those who listened a fortnight ago will remember that I looked at the events of March 1917 when, in a completely unexpected way, the Tsarist regime in Russia, after three centuries of the Romanovs, let alone the previous Tsars, was swept away, well, by an uncoordinated series of events on the streets of the major cities, mostly led by women who were out demonstrating against the collapse of Russian supplies of food and essentials after three years of war. Now, as I did mention earlier, several Russian experts had warned the Tsar that Russia couldn't fight a great war against a modern industrial power like Germany, and that proved absolutely correct. And by Early 1917, just like all of Europe, of course, the war was causing enormous shortages of food and every imaginable item, and people were war-weary. And in Australia, of course, as we saw last time, this led to the conscription campaign. Billy Hughes wanted to conscript all Australian men and send them to die on the Western Front, and that led the Labor movement to oppose him, and the conscription referendum was beaten. There would be a second episode of this, by the way, in late 1917, when Hughes would try again, and the referendum would be defeated by a bigger margin on the second occasion. In Europe, everywhere, war weariness and opposition to the war was gaining ground, but nowhere as strong as in Russia. That was because millions of Russian men had died needlessly on the Eastern Front, and by March, Russian society was in a state of collapse, and the Tsar's regime was swept away quite easily, in a sense. Uh, A series of demonstrations in March in St. Petersburg led to the collapse of the regime, and that happened also in big cities like Moscow, but it has to be remembered that St. Petersburg, which was then called Petrograd, by the way, was the capital, and the Tsarist regime had operated from there. But when the Tsar collapsed in March, uh, there was no alternative government, and Russia fell into a state of total anarchy. And I think I've quoted already the famous statement of Lenin's that power had fallen into the street 
And this was absolutely true. And Lenin realised that power was there for the taking. But, of course, it wasn't all that easy. Uh, many of the old Tsarist generals, who no longer had much of an army to command, wanted to bring back the Tsar and the old regime. And they also wanted to crush the many left-wing groups that had come to power, in a sense, after March. We would see these people today as, in effect, sort of proto-fascists. The word fascism hadn't yet arrived, but that was what they really wanted, a far right-wing government installed by the military and the crushing of all of the left-wing groups. That would have produced a very different Russia, but that was not to happen. Through 1917, Russia was ruled by an ineffectual man called Kerensky, who called himself a socialist and in April had led uh, the Russian Duma, the kind of parliament that had already existed and for a while became the centre of power, Kerensky led them to proclaim a republic. And so by April, Russia was formally a republic. And Kerensky then decided to set up uh, what he called a constituent assembly to draft a democratic constitution for Russia. So all this was in the pipeline. But while this was happening, across Russia, revolutionary working-class groups uh, had organised what were called Soviets. Now, the Soviets were local revolutionary committees. It's a Russian word, which means just that. And the revolutionary committees in the towns and villages set about trying to take over government, and in many places succeeded. They decided to hold a congress in St. Petersburg, Petrograd, as they now called it, in October of 1917, to try and set up a government around the Soviets, of which there were hundreds, perhaps thousands, across Russia. And so Lenin realised that October might be the best month to try and stage a seizure of power and then present power, as he said, to the Soviet Congress. The big cities of Russia would already be in the control of Lenin's Red Guards. Against this, the right-wing groups, led particularly by a man called General Kornilov, had decided that they would, if possible, stage a counter-coup and destroy the left and, as I said, set up a kind of fascist military regime, even bring the Tsar back. The Tsar had been sent with his family to Tobolsk in Siberia, where they were imprisoned in a house. It was thought that they could go to England in exile. But King George V of Britain was so alarmed at the revolution in Russia, he thought England might be on the verge of revolution. And the presence of the Tsar, who was very unpopular in the West, might trigger that off. And so the king personally intervened to stop the British government giving asylum to the Russian royal family, even to the Tsarina and the kids, who were not to be granted exile in Britain. So the Tsar had disappeared from the scene, though many of the right wing hoped he might be restored to the throne. So all of these events hung in the air through 1917. Indeed, in July... There was an attempted coup by right-wing groups in Petrograd and later in the year, in uh, September, a, a similar attempt which was stopped by a general strike organised by the trade unions 
and by these new groups, the Soviets and the Red Guards, which were armed members of the Soviet committees in the various towns, they stopped Kornilov and his supporters seizing power in September. Now, Lenin realised that all of this would go on until there was some sort of revolutionary government. And so in late October... The Bolsheviks, the Communist Party, led by Lenin, who'd gone into hiding, by the way, because it was thought that many of the left-wing leaders were at risk of assassination by the military groups who were around. They organised what became known famously in Russian history as the October Revolution. Later on, of course, it was celebrated in November because one of the things that the Russian Revolution did was to change the old Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar that we in the West have always used, at least since the Middle Ages. So October 1917 brings us to the moment when Lenin and the Bolsheviks seize power in St. Petersburg and Moscow and many other large cities. This, in fact, was not particularly difficult. And if you look around, I'm going to recommend several books that you might read to look at this event. One marvellous book by an American called John Reed is written in, in 1917 called Ten Days That Shook the World. Reed and his uh, girlfriend, a woman called Bryant, uh, were both American journalists, but they became involved in the, Amer in the revolution in uh, Russia, and he wrote this brilliant book. I'm sure you'd find copies of this book and others on the Russian Revolution in the bookshop at the Trades Hall, the new international bookshop, which, if you don't know it, I recommend it as the best political bookshop in Australia, absolutely without peer. And I'm sure you'd get John Reed's Ten Days That Shook the World there, or they'll get it for you. I think it's still in print. Another book you might read about these days is Dr. Zhivago, wonderful novel by Pasternak about a man, a doctor, Zhivago, who lives through all these events and uh, how they affect his life and his family. And it's based partly, pretty accurately, on the life of Pasternak, the author of the novel. Pasternak wrote the novel in the 60s and became famous when the, uh, the Russian government of the time banned the novel in Russia and later lifted the ban and the novel became a worldwide success, and also the film, a brilliant film, with Julie Christie and a whole cast, Omar Sharif uh, playing Zhivago. The film of Dr. Zhivago is very true to the novel. And finally, an Australian novel you should think about is by our own Thomas Keneally, a well-known, brilliant Australian novelist, and he wrote a book called The People's Train. Now, it seems an odd title, but it's about a Russian who fled from a prison camp under the Tsar in Siberia and made his way via China to Australia by boat and became a very prominent member of the Labour movement in Brisbane. And when the Russian Revolution came, this man made his way back to Russia to take part in the revolution. He was a great enthusiast for railways and for the building of a modern kind of railway. He would have 
loved fast trains, I might say. And the book is called The People's Train. It's been out a couple of years, three or four years. You'll get it in any good bookshop and it's readily available. The People's Train, a wonderful picture of, of an Australian involvement and a true one based on a number of Russians who came here before the First World War uh, and centred in Brisbane and then later in St Petersburg when this guy goes back and becomes part of the revolutionary government. In October, on the 25th of October, working to a concerted plan, Lenin's Bolsheviks seized power in all the major cities of Russia on the same day. They'd chosen that day because the Congress of Soviets, all these groups across Russia, had sent delegates to St. Petersburg for a Congress to draft the constitution of a new kind of state, a socialist state. They didn't want a kind of bourgeois revolution. They wanted a socialist state. Now, when they arrived in St. Petersburg, they found that the city was on the verge of being occupied. On the 25th, it was occupied by the Red Guards. And they seized the public buildings, uh, all the centres of government, and Kerensky's government just fell apart. Kerensky fled Russia, finished up in Britain where he lived for the rest of his life. Oddly enough, his son became a famous architect in Britain and was the architect who designed our Westgate Bridge here in Melbourne, a remarkable link. Anyway, on the 25th of October, Lenin and the Bolsheviks seized power. And in a famous moment, Lenin arrived late at night at the building in which the Congress of Soviets was meeting, uh, called the Smolny Institute. It's still there. It's uh, one of the sacred sites of the Russian revolutionary historians. Uh, it was a school for the children of the aristocracy. But uh, during the revolution, the communists had taken it over and made it their headquarters. Well, when the news came to Lenin, who was in hiding in the city, that all the public buildings were now in the hands of the Red Guards, he made his way, by tram as it turned out, to the Smolny. There, when, with the news that the city was basically in the hands of the communists, and soon Moscow would be in the same situation a few hours later, he made a famous and very brief speech. He told the audience of thousands of people that the coup had succeeded and the city was theirs. And he was proclaiming a government based on the Soviet committees, a Soviet government, he called it. And that word, of course, was to become the name of the new Russian state, a union of Soviets, and it would be called the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And he finished his speech with a brief sentence which set the tone for what was to come. He said, our revolution has succeeded. Let us now proceed to create the socialist order. It was quite clear what Lenin had in mind. But of course, all this was being played out against the background of near famine, chaos at every level of society, an army in mutiny, hundreds of thousands of soldiers coming home. Many of them, of course, joined the Soviets. And out of this one of Lenin's, his main supporter, and another brilliant figure, Trotsky. Trotsky created, out of this rebellious army, a new army loyal to the new Soviet state called the Red Army. 
and Trotsky, who had no military experience at all, revealed himself as a military genius. Uh, if you see the film Dr. Zhivago, he is portrayed in the film. Famously, he set up what were called armoured trains. And in Russia's vast spaces, where the railways were the major form of communication and travel, these armoured trains, military trains, with radio stations, with guns, with armed men who had motorbikes, they could stop the train and go to a nearby town and investigate what was happening. All of these events, uh, half a dozen of these remarkable trains, uh, which also had a public information service, even a cinema where people could see what was happening in the new Soviet state. These armoured trains were a feature of the revolutionary times that now occurred in Russia. And everywhere there was conflict. The right-wing groups fought back against the Soviets. Trotsky's Red Army was the principal reason for the victory of the Soviet state. It probably wouldn't have survived without that. And so Trotsky, as well as Lenin, was to be one of the principal figures in the years which followed. Lenin would die five years later, and Trotsky would be driven from Russia by Stalin, who was the third principal figure, and in a way the most violent and brutal of the revolutionaries, and was to be a disaster for the Soviet state. Across the world, the Soviet revolution was regarded with horror by conservatives. Here in Australia, as much as anywhere else, many of them were convinced that the Soviet revolution would not last long, that a few months would see it overthrown by military groups, by the right wing, or simply collapse under the pressure of famine and war. And Lenin realised the most important thing was to end the war with Germany. Now, this meant a humiliating Russian surrender and all sorts of harsh terms imposed by the Germans who regarded the revolution in Russia, irrespective of who won, with great pleasure because it would mean that the German armies on the Eastern Front would be freed to go and fight in France. And the Germans saw this as a principal moment when they might win the First World War, except in the same year in March, almost at the same moment as these events were occurring in Russia, the United States had entered the war. And so the Allies in the West had lost Russia, but they had gained the United States. The ending of the war with Germany, however humiliating for the Russian government, was to free it to carry out its policies at home and use the Red Army that Trotsky created to fight at home against the enemies of the new Soviet Union. And at the same time, Lenin and the Bolsheviks set about a tremendous program of social change. For instance, they nationalised the entire banking system. And so the wealthy classes suddenly were bankrupt. Many industries were taken over by the workers. That was an invariable pattern. In the world outside, especially conservatives and capitalists in the West, regarded these events with great horror. It spread across the world, even in Australia, where conservatives denounced the Russian Revolution. And out of this came that long struggle between conservative groups and the ideas of the Soviet Revolution that much later became the Cold War. 
and uh, the Soviet Union as a state existed until after Gorbachev came to power. That was, in a sense, about 60 years uh, in which that phase of the Russian Revolution existed. The other thing was the new Russian leaders wanted to industrialise Russia. This later became Stalin's great idea, and in a sense he was very successful, at great cost to the Russian people. Industries were pushed forward with great zeal, although when World War II came, it meant that Russia was an industrial power that could match Nazi Germany. But all these things lay in the future. In October and November of 1917, the whole of Europe was shocked or amazed or delighted at the events in Russia. It also set the pattern for what was to come in the remaining year of the war. The war would end in November, November the 11th, the famous date, the 11th day of the 11th month, would end in November 1918, just a year after the Russian Revolution. But the ideas of ending the war by revolution which in fact had already happened in Ireland, now spread across Europe. And everywhere, socialist parties divided. Many socialists in countries like Germany and France and elsewhere, despite the war, said, oh no, we'll try to change capitalist society by peaceful means. And that was the view of the Australian Labour Party. But some said, no, that won't work. We've got to work for a revolution like the one in Russia. And so there grew a deep division on the left everywhere between these two opposing views of how socialism could be achieved. And that was to be a principal feature of European politics in the next 12 months after the Russian events, until in November 1918, revolutions would break out in Germany, in Austria and Hungary, and across the old Austrian Empire. And indeed, in many places in Europe, there would be revolutionary upheavals. And so the Russian Revolution was a very important fact in ending the First World War and creating a, a new kind of state, actually, and around the world, those who supported the Russian Revolution were enamoured of this new kind of what they saw as a revolutionary socialist society. And it became a sort of guiding light to those who joined the newly formed Communist Party. Now, in Australia, left-wing groups who'd felt like this had in 1920 formed the Communist Party of Australia. This was in direct opposition to many of the ideas of the ALP, which was, of course, the principal left political group of the time. But this happened almost everywhere. In countries like France after the war, the coming of the Communist Party created two major left-wing and sometimes very divergent and even opposing political ideas on the left. And so the Russian Revolution, in every sense, changed the world and set the moment, set the pattern for the events that would end the war a year later. I did mention earlier in my comment that there had always been a white, as they were called, white Russian army opposed to the Bolsheviks from the very start of the Soviet Union. And there were those who wanted to restore the Tsar. 
the Tsarist royal family was, prison, was imprisoned in Tobolsk in Siberia, and the local Soviet actually was in charge of their movements, a local committee. Uh, Tobolsk is a long way from St. Petersburg. Lenin had given them permission to do what they liked with the royal family, except that they mustn't allow them to be freed by white groups who were operating in parts of Siberia, and indeed very close to Tobolsk. And in June of 1918, one of these groups uh, appeared to likely to capture Tobolsk, and the local Soviet committee uh, determined not to allow the Tsar to be rescued by these white armies and then become, as it were, a pretender again for the throne, decided to execute the royal family. The Tsar, his wife, their son, the crown prince, uh, a sad little boy of 11, 12, who had had a lifetime of terrible illness with hemophilia, and his five rather beautiful daughters were all arrested. Well, they were imprisoned in a house and they were told to pack and be ready to go somewhere else. And they did this, and then they were put in the basement room to await transport. But instead, a group of armed men came in and shot them all, and the entire royal family was wiped out in one blow. By the way, this, when it was reported around the world, was seen as another shocking event. And many people had come to see that what was taking place in Russia was a revolution at least as significant as the French Revolution 150 years earlier, especially with the execution of the royal family, which paralleled the French events. The white armies fought back and there became a civil war which was assisted by some of the Western powers, the British and uh, other Western powers, but principally the British and the French to a degree, sent arms and equipment and indeed soldiers to help the whites fight back against the Bolsheviks. And so between 1918 and 1921, Russia was plunged into civil war, terrible civil war. Nobody even knows now how many hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of Russians, died in these terrible times. And, of course, it was accompanied by famine and disease uh, and by 1921, Russia was in a state of almost total collapse. And in fact, a worldwide campaign was arranged to send vital medical supplies and food to Russia. The situation was so catastrophic. But the white armies were defeated by the success of Trotsky's Red Army, eventually the last place in Russia to have a white army presence was the Crimea, of which we've heard something in recent times. The French Navy, by the way, went to help rescue the whites. Many aristocrats, white soldiers, were rescued by French warships. The French government had been very anti-Soviet, and this eventually was ended by a revolt of some of the French sailors who refused to go on and take part in the civil war that was now raging in Russia. Uh, virtually the same happened in Britain. Uh, the British government had worn out public support and there was widespread anger at the continued involvement of right-wing groups in the West in the Russian Revolution. And so by 1921, the civil war was virtually over but Russia ended the war in a worse state than it had 
been, even at the time of the revolution in 1917, four years of civil war had wrought a terrible problem. And uh, all of that now meant that the attempt to create some sort of socialist society in Russia was going to be dogged by the terrible suffering which the Russian people had endured to create the revolution. And you've been listening to historian and author Brian McKinlay. I'm sure there were some of the listeners to this program, Juice Bay Home Time, were at the book launch on Friday night, a, a very, very successful book launch. And if you haven't already got your book, I'd advise you to get in pretty quick because it's going to be a hit. Well, it already is a hit and we don't want people queuing up at the door so get in quick to get yours before they're all gone. It's Radical Radio. You can get it by coming here to Smith Street, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or you can order it over the line online at 3cr.org.au. But it's a history of 3CR, not to be missed by any supporter of 3CR. And you're listening to 3CR Treaty Now. From remote communities to the big cities, and representative of our many different voices, cultures, languages, and beliefs. Community Radio is the voice of local communities. But this voice is being threatened. The recent federal budget has reduced funding for community digital radio, a move that puts all community digital radio services at risk. Show your support for live and local voices by signing the petition at keepcommunityradio.org.au. Help keep the community in your radio. Seven years ago this month, the brutal Sri Lankan civil war ended, but there is little peace or justice for the Tamil people. For years, pressure has been building for an international investigation into war crimes committed by the Sri Lankan soldiers who were ordered to, quote, finish the job, unquote. With video evidence of the alleged execution of bound prisoners and other atrocities committed in the violent final showdown, and silence from the Sri Lankan government regarding hundreds of Tamil political prisoners who have been in jail for years without trial on suspicion of links to the now-defeated LTTE. At the weekend, I spoke with Aaron Malwaganam, who is the presenter of the Tamil Manifest program on 3CR. I just want to start by talking about Tamil Genocide Remembrance Day. There's also a Remembrance Day in Sri Lanka, isn't there? They're both in May. Could you explain the difference? Yes. 18th of May is the Tamil Genocide Remembrance Day. Tamils all over the world will be coming together to remember the victims of war in Sri Lanka. On 18th of May, we'll be having a Remembrance Day event uh, in Melbourne as well at the Hungarian Community Centre. It starts at 6pm and uh, it's in Montana. 
18th of May is a, is a very important day in the, in the Tamil calendar. In 2009, the war was at its peak on 18th of May. Thousands of uh, people were killed on the, on the final day. In May 2009, many of your listeners would have heard about this. Uh, according to the United Nations, over 70,000 Tamils were killed. And according to the, the Tamil counts, at least 146,000 people remain unaccounted for. Uh, and this day is to remember the genocidal actions of the, the Rajapaksha regime and also to remember the genocidal actions of successive Sri Lankan governments. Tamils were not only killed in 2009, this has been going on for over 60 years. Successive Sri Lankan governments have targeted Tamils through pogroms and through slogans like War for Peace campaign. In Sri Lanka, while Tamils mourn their dead, the Sri Lankan state uh, uh, will be having a, a victory, military uh, victory parade uh, on the 19th of May. They celebrate uh, their victory over Tamil Tigers on 19th of May every year. So it's, it's, it's like an insult to Tamils who are grieving the losses of uh, their children, their mothers and fathers and, and siblings. Just talk for a moment about the 70,000 plus who were killed. How were they killed? In, in what period were they killed? According to the United Nations, 70,000. According to the Tamil counts, over 146,000 remain unaccounted for. And these were Tamils who were living in, in an area called Vanni. The Tamil Tigers had a de facto state for over a decade uh, in this area. It is a traditional t- uh, Tamil homeland. Back in 2008... Rajabaksha, in the name of humanitarian operation to rescue the civilians in the de facto state, he carried out a war which was purely wiping out the Tamil population. So from 2008 till May 2009, we've seen hospitals being targeted. Uh, you know, they uh, set up no-fire zones, which means designated areas where they will not bomb uh, bomb that area, but then you know once civilians get to the no-fire zones, they actively targeted the no-fire zones in order to maximise the the casualties. And you know back in uh, on 10th of May 2009, actually they they with the aim of uh, capturing the the Tamil Tiger controlled area, they split the no-fire zone into two by the military uh, vehicles just driving through. Uh, there were over 300,000 people uh, in that no-fire zone, and when they, when they split the no-fire zone into two, tens of thousands of uh, Tamils were killed on that day alone. And uh, by 18th of May, uh, we've seen, uh, you know, even the, the human rights organizations admit that at least 100,000 people would have been uh, killed in that period. Is there any possibility that that 146,000 people, that their fate will ever be known, where they've been buried, what happened to them? Sri Lankan government has been actively trying to whitewash uh, their crimes and, and as part of whitewashing their crimes is uh, destroy any evidence of uh, uh, killing uh, these people. It's a very small island though and that's an awful lot of people. 
It is a very small island. Uh, the Tamil area is even smaller. And, you know, Sri Lankan government has uh, successfully managed to get away with the, the, the killings of these people, you know. Uh, Jan, one thing is killing these people until 18th of May. They actually arrested tens of thousands of people post-war. Uh, so many of them were uh, kept in, uh, in concentration camps behind barbed wires, uh, and so many were taken into jails. Now, those who were taken into the concentration camps have eventually been released, but those who have been arrested by the, the army and kept in uh, sacred areas, we don't know about where they are. There are at least about 15 to 20,000 people who remain unaccounted for who were arrested by the, the Sri Lankan military in the final days of the war. There was a famous Catholic priest by the name Father Francis Joseph, who was the, the head of the, the Tamil Nadu Educational Development Council uh, at that time. His main role was to uh, ensure many of the, the, the Tamil children uh, in, the, in the north were able to speak uh, English. You know, he played a very important role in, uh, in developing uh, young kids as, uh, as leaders. On the final day of the war, he took over 1,000 Tamil Tiger cadres, Tamil political leaders, to surrender to the Sri Lankan military. There are so many witnesses who have seen Father Francis Joseph and over 1,000 people being loaded onto the trucks. All those 1,000 people and uh, Father Francis Joseph, we don't know where they are even to this date. And the hope of... Uh, of finding them alive is diminishing day by day. Last year, there was a torture cell UN investigators found in, in an area called Tringamala, a secret prison, which gave a bit of hope uh, to many of the Tamils that we are going to find some of the disappeared alive. But, you know, that hope has uh, diminished uh, since the new regime failed to take any action. But there are political prisoners that you know are in jail, aren't there? There are political prisoners that we know uh, are, are in jail. There are over 200 uh, political prisoners who've been, who have been kept in prison for tens of years. You know, some have been uh, in prison for over 20 years, some uh, as little as seven years. And, you know, we, we're continuing to campaign uh, for their release. It is increasingly a difficult uh, fight uh, because of the level of support uh, Sri Lankan government has in the international community. Even the UN Human Rights Commissioner, when he visited Sri Lanka, he refused to call on the Sri Lankan government to release the, the political prisoners. You know, these are Tamils who were either had connections to the Tamil Tigers or civilians who supported the Tamil Tigers. Uh, and they were taken into prison because uh, they were, you know, campaigning against the Sri Lankan government. Now that the war has been over for over seven years, why is there a need for them to keep uh, these political prisoners, you know, without being charged? My only answer is they still want to instill fear uh, in the Tamil community. If anybody speak out against the government, they will face... The, the same situation. Are you saying that these prisoners haven't been subjected to a trial? 
Yes, uh, these prisoners haven't been tried in a court, so they haven't even been properly sentenced. Are these men and women? These are men and women, yes. And do their families have any access to them? Uh, the family members do have access to most of the, the political prisoners, so they can uh, visit them. However, the conditions uh, in these jails are awful. Generally, jails in, in South Asia are not the best place. <laughs> you know, just because you're getting free accommodation and free food doesn't mean it's the, it's the best place, <laughs> you know, in South Asia. However, when it comes to Tamil political prisoners, these jails uh, in Sinhalese-dominated uh, areas, it's a lot worse because there is continuous discrimination by fellow detainees and also by the guards as well. We have seen in the recent months and years, we have seen uh, Tamil political prisoners getting beaten up uh, by uh, either Sinhalese detainees or, uh, or the, the guards uh, themselves. Are the families of these prisoners also targeted? The family members of uh, certain uh, political prisoners do get targeted when they campaign for their release. Uh, however, we haven't seen too much attack on the, uh, on the families because of the, the political prisoners' issue becoming more of an international issue, you know. Uh, there are many human rights groups in the international community keeping an eye on the situation of the political prisoners. We're not seeing too many attacks on the members of the, the political prisoners. However, you know, it has happened in the past. Despite the, the dreadful conditions that you've talked about, these prisoners are still going to have hunger strikes within the prison? Yes, uh, last, uh, la at the end of last year, there were various hunger strikes uh, by the political prisoners. Uh, there are uh, at least four different prisons where these political prisoners are being kept in. Uh, and we've seen uh, actions taken by detainees in various uh, jails. Uh, there were hunger strikes. There were you know, many protests uh, from the outside community as well, from, from Sri Lanka and in the diaspora. At one point, the detainees went on hunger strike to a point where they, they had to be hospitalized. But still, uh, you know, we have only heard uh, false promises uh, from the government. Nothing meaningful is uh, yet to come. Have any prisoners been released following those hunger strikes? Following those hunger strikes, some of the, the leaders who were involved uh, in the hunger strikes were released, but we're talking about handful. You know, there are over 200 uh, detainees, these uh, camps, in order to calm the, you know, in order to bring down the protests, giving false hope to people. You know, they have released uh, a few people, but vast majority are continuing to be detained and, uh, and, and face indefinite detention. Does the government of Sri Lanka acknowledge that these are political prisoners or do they say that they're just common criminals? The government of Sri Lanka has uh, been sending mixed messages. They don't agree that these are common criminals. At the same time, they don't call them political prisoners. Uh, they call them terrorists, despite them never being tried. They call them terrorists. These people, uh, if they're released into the community, they will go and campaign against the government, so they shouldn't be released into the community. There is actually a large number of uh, uh, Buddhist uh, singular nationalist groups in the south 
who have been campaigning against the release of these uh, political prisoners. So the government has this uh, pressure from the South as well. But if it's serious about releasing these political prisoners, I'm sure it'll be able to uh, work out a way to educate the, the, the people in the South. I don't think the, the government is genuine about getting these political prisoners released into the community. You mentioned Buddhist monks then. They're a problem in Sri Lanka for the Tamil people, aren't they? They're very radical and they would like all religions other than their own to be wiped out of Sri Lanka. Is that correct? Yes. um, The people in the south, and I wouldn't say that the Sinhalese people uh, in general, rather there are certain section of the uh, the Sinhalese community in the south live in this Mahavamsa mindset, which is the whole island of Sri Lanka should be a singular Buddhist island. means the main uh, identity should be uh, singular and the main religion should be uh, Buddhism. If Tamils want to live on that island, they can live as guests. They can't call the north and east as a traditional homeland. You know, that is the mindset in the south, and this is at the heart of the problem. Buddhist monks have got political parties. There are two political parties called Jadi Hela Urumia and Bodu Balasena. Bodu Balasena was uh, very close to the Rajabaksha regime, and Jadi Hela Urumia was part of the Rajabaksha regime. Now it's part of the current regime, the Sri Sena regime. Both of them have been instrumental, not just attacks against the the Tamil population, but Tamil-speaking Muslims as well. The Muslim mosques uh, have been attacked. In fact, uh, you know, so many of the mosques have been burned down by the the Buddhist monks. And their claim is that Islam is spreading in Sri Lanka and they don't want Hindus to be, you know, having temples uh, in Sri Lanka. But they have also been doing so many other things in the north. Uh, Recently, and we have seen photographic evidence, recently we've seen Buddhist monks guarding building of new Buddhist viharas uh, in the north. Now, there are no Buddhist population in the north, but you're seeing hundreds of Buddhist viharas being built in every nook and corner, you know. The Buddhist monks are actively engaged in changing the demography of the Tamil homeland. In the eastern Tamil homeland, just a couple of days back, uh, we've seen the Association for the Victims of the Disappeared organizing a protest in, uh, in, in Ampara district, uh, this is about five days ago, uh, in fact, about last uh, Wednesday, when uh, the Tamil mothers uh, were campaigning for the, the release of the disappeared, these Buddhist monks led uh, a group of people who went and attacked the, uh, the Tamil protesters and, you know, threatened women with assault, you know, so the, the Buddhist monks have been doing a lot of bad things uh, to the Tamil population and also the the Tamil-speaking Muslim population. In the north, uh, is the military also in cahoots with the the Buddhist monks? Because the military has taken over a lot of the Tamil areas. So the Sri Lankan military has been occupying the Tamil homeland for for the past many years. Since the end of the war, 
we have got for every five Tamil there is an army member present in the Tamil homeland. Uh, in some villages it's three Tamil per army member. Uh, it's quite heavy military presence. Anybody who travels to Sri Lanka will be able to notice the, the heavy military presence. The Sri Lankan military is running uh, hotels, you know, selling food, for example. They're part of everyday life of the Tamils. They have huge control over the, the Tamil economy. And, uh, you know, they have been, gra you know, they have been grabbing Tamil lands and using it uh, uh, to build more bases. They have been grabbing Tamil lands and giving it to Buddhist uh, monks so that they can build more viharas. But also, so many of the Tamil men in the Vanni area, for example, have been denied of fishing rights, whereas Singhalese fishermen from the south would come to the same area and would be you know, fishing in that area with the full protection of the Sri Lankan military. We have also seen you know, some of the, the lands that were grabbed by the Sri Lankan military being used to build hotels. That's on one side. You know, areas like um, Nagadivam, Nainadivu, which is a Tamil name uh, for an island uh, just off uh, Jaffna, has been changed to singular, Nagadivya. It's a singular name for Nainadivu, and they have officially changed the name to singular. There are so many uh, villages uh, that are being uh, changed to singular names. Uh, there are so many roads uh, being changed to uh, singular names. In fact, uh, the Sri Lankan government is looking at building new model villages in the Tamil homeland, you know, completely new villages where they're going to uh, name it after Sri Lankan presidents, uh, ex-Sri Lankan presidents who are uh, Singhalese. Uh, not a single uh, ex-president has been a Tamil. And it is likely that a village that uh, get built in the Tamil homeland will be named after Rajapaksha. What you've been describing, Aaron, shows that the, the Tamil people have not much going for them in their own country. So is it then a fact that the diaspora, who are living in a number of countries, it's up to them? With any oppression, it is the oppressed that need to lead the struggle. And what happens when they do? Obviously, we are going to find uh, when the oppressed, uh, you know, speak up, uh, you know, constant uh, harassment by the Sri Lankan military. Regardless of that, they need to be the one leading the struggle. And, and we expect the Tamil population to somehow find a way to overcome the fear or overcome the harassment and uh, lead the struggle through democratic means. Earlier this year, people who were part of the Northern Provincial Council and people who are part of activist groups formed a, an organization called Tamil People Council, which is intended to lead the struggle against uh, the military occupation. And we're also seeing campaigns like the campaigns for the, the disappeared, campaigns for the political prisoners, uh, you know, erupted in the uh, in the in the last few years. You know, we hope that these you know these movements will ultimately become the movement for, to free the Tamil homeland uh, from the, the the singular military occupation. However, diaspora do need to play a key role. That is. 
to support the, the Tamil population in the Tamil homeland, you know, support the, the Tamil people in the Tamil homeland in a way that, you know, they have uh, the, the courage to speak out against the Sri Lankan government. We do need to extend our solidarity, not just the Tamil diaspora, but people in the international community do have a role to play in encouraging the Tamil population in the Tamil homeland to resist government. You know, I expect a lot of uh, solidarity protests uh, in the international community, support them financially to overcome the humanitarian crisis they're facing at the moment, support them in uh, whatever way we can. And that was Aaron, who presents the, <coughs> excuse me, Tamil Manifest program here on 3CR on Saturday afternoon at either 1 o'clock or one thirty, to get more information about what is happening in Sri Lanka for the Tamil population. It's coming up to five minutes past five. I'll be here until six o'clock. We've got a few more things to talk about yet. We've got um, Coral Winter talking about an answer to the demise of antibiotics and also a speaker from the Palestinian symposium that was held in Melbourne last month and coming up. Right after this will be Dr. Margaret Beavers from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The Nuclear Fuel Cycle Royal Commission presented its final report to the government on Friday, and yesterday the Premier, Joe Weatherill, handed down the findings. I'll just explain the terms of reference for the Royal Commission. It was established in March 2015 to consider the practical, economic and ethical issues raised by South Australia's potential involvement in nuclear mining, enrichment, energy and storage. I'm speaking now to Dr Maggie Beavis, who's the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Maggie, what have you been able to work out about the findings? How many recommendations were there? Twelve. And it's a fairly pro-nuclear document, I have to say. Are you surprised? Not a bit, given the selection of the, both the commissioner and the panel. The expert panel had five people, three of whom were clearly pro-nuclear, really. One who was ostensibly independent and one who was an environmentalist. So coming out with a fairly pro-nuclear set of recommendations is not surprising. The biggest recommendation is establishment of importing nuclear waste storage, which is interesting because there's no successful high-level nuclear waste storage operating anywhere in the world. All the ones that have been set up have failed for various reasons. The Americans spent a great deal of money setting up one in New Mexico that's had to shut down 
after 15 years and the reason they gave was because they felt that the cost cutting and the safety culture were not good enough that they'd started off with lots of good intentions and by 15 years it had degraded so much they had major explosions and radioactivity leaks and it's had to be shut down. So it's interesting that they feel that Australia can do something that hasn't been achieved anywhere in the world. They're not Um, explaining why they think Australia's better. Not explaining why Australia's better, nor why, if you're going to be shipping this stuff, why A, that expense doesn't make it more expensive here than other places that might be able to do it. So, you know, and also the safety issues of shipping high-level radioactive waste when it's used to make weapons is really, you know, if, if someone wanted to take a ship with some high-level waste, that would be a useful thing for someone who wanted to make weapons. So even though it can be stored carefully, this waste is, is something that uh, needs to be treated with a great deal of respect because it is such a long-term hazard. The other real downside of the recommendations is that they don't actually call for independent financial modelling. The modelling that they do, which is promising South Australia billions and billions, has been done by a company that is uh, heavily associated with the industry and is not independent. And the assumptions that it's used, I mean, like all modelling, it's based on what you assume. So if you assume a very good price and you assume that things can be built very, very economically, then you make a profit. But if the price is not good or the building is expensive, then you lose money. And this could end up a fiasco that leaves South Australia with a great deal of nuclear waste and, and broke as well. Do they talk about how it's going to get to a nominated place in South Australia? You'd have to have a dedicated port, a dedicated railway, dedicated trucks. I think you'd have to have a great deal of security around any sort of transport. Location, I mean, the first thing they need to do before they get down to dedicated sites and all that, I mean, which is very expensive, we know you're quite right, they would need dedicated facilities. But more than that, what they need is for the people of South Australia to accept that this is the best hope that South Australia has for renewal. And it's a really desperate measure. I mean, years ago we were all scandalised when people were dumping toxic waste off the coast of Africa and appalled that Africa should be being paid a pittance to take on the most toxic material in the world. And now it looks like this is what's happening to South Australia. I mean, this is not a business opportunity. They're going to talk about it as a business opportunity. They should at least get some independent financial modelling that's done by a company with a strong vested interest. And the place that they're proposing, it's only how many k's away from a town? The place they proposed for the federal waste dump, which is a separate process, the federal waste dump is in the Flinders Ranges. I'm not sure whether that's what I'm talking about. Yes, I'm sorry, I'm getting confused. Yes, so this is, there's two separate processes. There's the, the federal process where they're looking for waste that's currently at, um, mostly at Lucas Heights and some that's in South Australia already and a little tiny bit that's in hospitals, but that's very, very small, it's some 1%. So that's the, the location of the Flinders Ranges and that's a separate process for a domestic dump. And Australia does need a safe place with nuclear waste, but the process they've used to find this place has been very misleading. A lot of, particularly on the medical side, they've told a lot of, made a lot of statements which are just incorrect to try and persuade people that they need to have this waste dump in the location. I think it's about 10 kilometres from a town. I'm not exactly sure, but it's pretty close. And it's also in areas that, for the indigenous peoples, is really very important culturally. So I think they've again chosen badly. And what was intended to be a good process from the start remains to be seen whether they stick 
their promises, actually they promised that, this, that the community would need to accept this site for them to impose it on them. They weren't going to impose it on them unilaterally. So I'm really hopeful that if they stick to their word, it is very clear that this community does opposes this nuclear waste facility. So if they stick to their word, then this won't be going ahead. And the other one, where are they planning to put this? If well, they for, the, for the uh, international waste dump, that will be a hugely contentious place. Where they're going to put that will remain to be seen. They've first got to persuade the Australian people that they want to be an international waste dump because, honestly, this is very toxic material and I think, they have, I think they'll be up against it, frankly. I mean, there's been reports in the past that have come out proposing nuclear power and the Australian people have said, don't even think about it. And I suspect the South Australians understand that this is not only very toxic material, but also financially very risky. I suspect they want to have a borrow it. You just wonder why they even try this on, because, yes, you said, people won't accept it, or they can't just force it through. I think there's a lot of money to be made for the middlemen. Can you imagine how long it's going to be delayed with all the, the people complaining and putting in submissions that they don't want it, and that, you know, that how many years is it going to take? Yes, but also what's scary is that they're going to have to import this very high-level waste and just sit on the top of the ground for about two decades because they have to be paid for taking all this toxic waste and then they can use the money to do the constructing. So it's going to be decades before any of it actually gets underground and the, the whole proposal seems to be deeply flawed. And also why Australia thinks it will be cheaper for waste to come here than if there are two waste facilities that are being built around the world and why once those waste facilities are already built, why is it cheaper for them to take other countries' waste? I think the modelling financially is very, it's very optimistic. And how are they going to dig the repository for the underground storage? Well, I think it's a major engineering undertaking. Building the tunnels, making sure that they're um, sufficiently well ventilated. I mean, nuclear waste gives off a lot of heat. So you have to, it's a very, very complicated process and there is a reason why there is no operating facility anywhere in the world. The ones in Finland talk about have been going to be built, but they're not going to be operating till early next decade. So I think it's a very, very optimistic proposal. I think it's um, an act of desperation, almost really about jobs in South Australia because of the loss of the manufacturing jobs. And this is, I think, a political distraction, trying to provide some jobs or at least something about with regard to jobs. It may be that the South Australian submarines, the one good thing about the South Australian submarines may be that they don't end up having to have a dump. But then again, it's all about war, isn't it, and fighting yeah, someone absolutely. else's war. Absolutely, and also there's a lot of debate about whether we need submarines, whether submarines, by the time they actually get commissioned, will in fact be obsolete, given that drone technology is improving so much and whether underwater drones will mean that submarines lose their ability to be stealth weapons so it's it's very it's, things are changing fast and weaponry and the other alarming thing is with this amount of expenditure on defense are we going to set up a sort of regional arms race australia doesn't need a regional arms race it's nobody to have a regional arms race and yet we're spending so much in defense it's interesting with the budget coming out last week it's very clear that defense has been sort of decoupled from the economy the rest of the economy is being cut back very harshly, but Venice has had a generous increase in funding and is now on target to reach 2% of GDP by 2021, which is significantly earlier than they had said before. Is there anything in the budget that you're encouraged by? Not a lot. It's very depressing. Foreign aid has been cut again. So now with foreign aid, Australia is just spending 23 cents in every 
United Nations recommends you spend 70 cents in every $100 in aid. And in places, many places like England, they've legislated to make that a legal requirement. It isn't subject to the budget. Just every year they pay their 0.7%. Whereas Australia is cutting some really important aid projects and uh, it's really the people who can, can least afford it that are getting cut back. So, no, the budget was not a very encouraging document. I mean, with the defence spending, there's so much else we could be spending money on. And In fact, in terms of job creation, there's very good evidence to say that a million dollars spent in the military creates about eight jobs, whereas about a million dollars spent in education creates about 15 jobs, or in healthcare creates 14 jobs. That's some very good research from a chap in Washington. So spending on defence is not only expensive and at risk of sparking an arms race, it's also, in terms of job creation, not very good. And how much of that aid budget is tied up to keeping asylum seekers behind bars? Oh, I don't know off the top of my head, but I know that a substantial proportion has been allocated to, to those indefinite prison camps, and I think that's a disgrace. I think the whole aid budget in Australia, the fact that we've cut... $11.3 billion over the last two years is a real indictment of the current government. Not just the current government too, when we're coming into an election and I heard Chris Bowen just last evening saying, no, the Labor Party is definitely going to keep our policy on asylum seekers. We can't have people drowning at sea. Well, I heard Bill Shorten saying that they were going to stop indefinite detention. So somewhere in that they've got to find some other option because it really the, the, it is a national disgrace, these detention centres. They're not detention centres, they're prison camps, sorry, whatever you call them. It's, it's all language. And the, the harm it's doing people, the, the physical and the mental and the psychological harm, you as a, a medical professional would, would, would understand that. I worked for a while at Asylum Seeker Resource for some years, Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, and the damage this does to people means that some people come out with sort of post-traumatic stress disorder that, that may make it impossible for them even to get a job ever. I mean, it's torturing people deliberately. I mean, the refugees that came to us in the Second World War are now the sort of backbone of our society and have done wonderful things, as has the Vietnamese refugees that came under Freya. And to be deliberately damaging these people with sort of unconscionable cruelty is a very shameful thing for Australia and just totally unacceptable. The nuclear weapons update happening in Geneva. What's the latest story on that? Yeah, this is good news. This is really, really good news. What's happened is there is a process now looking at wording for a nuclear weapons ban. We're probably closer to a legal ban on nuclear weapons than we've been for a decade or two. And the reason this is, is it's been recognised that we need it's a two-step process. You get a ban happening, and then after that, then you do all the logistics and, and operational stuff to actually get people to reduce their stockpiles and then remove them. So it's a two-step process. But just as we've had bans on biological weapons and mines and cluster munitions and chemical weapons, if we can get a ban on nuclear weapons, it means that this whole scourge of nuclear weapons can be over a period of time markedly reduced and the sort of, sort of humanitarian impacts of even a small nuclear weapons detonation if, if say Pakistan and India exchange nuclear weapons this would mean that you end up with a nuclear winter there's so much dust thrown you don't I mean this weapons obviously kill hundreds of thousands of people which is terrible but in addition to that for about a decade there's what's called a nuclear winter which in turn will reduce crop yields by 
by about 10% in all sorts of crops. And the modelling on that shows that about between 1 and 2 billion people would die subsequent to that nuclear exchange. So getting a nuclear weapon is, is an absolutely critical critical thing, given that it's one of sort of that and climate change are the two big threats to humanity at the moment. So having this process in Geneva where they're actually working on the wording, wording for a ban and a number of countries have put forward a strong proposal to get this wording to go further, it's, it's really exciting and, and watch this space because I think there's going to be some very... It's, the, the, there's another meeting still to happen, so it happens in three different steps, but I think there'll be some very good outcomes in coming months. Are there any countries that have declined to participate? Well, Australia, bless its socks, is an active underminer. It's sort of, if you like, acting on behalf of the United States and actively undermining this process, putting up weaker wording and generally being unhelpful. It's taking quite a spoiler role. So, in fact, there's a lot of sort of hypocrisy around that, given that Australia has always said that it's nuclear weapons disarmament, but, in fact... In the reality is, in the, in the um, forum of the United Nations, it's actively undermining this whole process. What about the other big powers that have nuclear weapons, Russia, China, France? What's their position? They initially ignored this process. There were three conferences on the humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons that happened in the last three years. And once countries heard sort of the, the ghastly humanitarian impacts and the fact that no, there's no possible response to a nuclear weapons impact. Everybody's dead. The hospitals are dead. The workers, health workers are dead. Everybody's dead. And the long-term impacts are so massive that there really isn't any alternative but to get rid of them. But Russia and they've started to participate a little, but it is again in a spoiling role. They're, they're not accepting this as an issue. It was interesting. South Africa came out last year and said that in fact it was really a form of nuclear apartheid. That there was one set of rules for the countries that had nuclear weapons and they were imposing their will on all the other countries that didn't have nuclear weapons. And it's an interesting way to frame it because I think the terrible damage that these weapons could inflict is in some ways these countries holding the rest of the world to ransom. So where is the big push coming from to get this treaty? I have to say, (laughs) uh, the Medical Association for Prevention of War back in 2007, some predecessors of mine and people like Tillman Ruff and... Dimity Hawkins got together and proposed ICANN, the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, and that was launched in Melbourne in 2007. And um, it's been like giving birth to a gorilla. It's, it's gone from strength to strength. It has 400 partner organisations around the world and has been an absolute tower of strength and been very pivotal in getting these humanitarian conferences happening in the last few years and it's those humanitarian conferences that have woken countries up to what the appalling consequences are if we don't do something about these nuclear weapons so ICANN has done a huge amount and um, it's very exciting to see sort of this coming to some fruition in Geneva now. And when is the next round of talks? I think there's some happening right now and I think there's another lot happening in July and then they'll take that back to the United Nations later in the year so there's this were in the second of three rounds of talks in Geneva happening at the moment. And are there representatives of ICANN Australia in there at Absolutely. the moment? Absolutely. Tilburn Ruff and uh, Professor Tilburn Ruff and Dr Bill Williams are over there along with Tim Wright, who is our executive director, and I'm sure they'll be doing their utmost to get a really effective and binding set of wording put forward. Be interesting to talk to them when they come back. Yes, indeed. We look forward to hearing what they've got to say. We haven't touched on the wars in the Middle East today, but there is a 
an outcome for health workers? Yes, well, they've been it's appalling. There's been attacks on hospitals in the Middle East particularly, but also in South Sudan and other countries at war. And it's become such a problem that the United Nations Security Council passed a resolution unanimously on the 3rd of May just making sure that all countries understand that these health workers and these health facilities need to be protected. And it's really important that every country trains its armed forces properly but also prosecutes anybody who's responsible for such attacks. And it's really important these investigations are... These these bombings need to be done by an independent tri- tribunal sort of under the Geneva Conventions because, for example, the United States earlier this month released the in findings of the bombings in Kunduz, which your listeners may remember from last year, killed about 30 health workers and was very sustained Médecins Sans Frontier hospital under bombing. And, of course, the United States military investigated itself and found out that it was just a tragic mistake. Well, there's lots of evidence to suggest otherwise that it was a deliberate target. And so it's very, very important that the, the military don't investigate themselves, that they're a proper independent investigation so the military realise that they do have to respect these medical facilities and these medical workers who are doing incredible work in incredible difficult circumstances. And I was speaking there with Dr Margie Beavis, who's the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. While the human toll continues to rise, refugees in offshore detention have reached over 50 days of powerful protests. Friends, families and feminists against detention invite you to march for civil disobedience and refugees. Meet at the State Library this Thursday at 3.30pm or join us after work. For updates on where you can join the action, go to www.facebook.com forward slash Melbourne FFFAD. Shut down Melbourne to shut down offshore. FFFAD is a 3CR supporter. Next, the topic is new old technology for fighting superbugs. And I'm speaking to retired research chemist Coral Winter. Can you just take us back to the beginning of antibiotics and just why we're in the state we're in today with the use of them? It's mainly because of the the agricultural industry or the livestock industry because they've used tonnes and tonnes of antibiotics which they inject automatically into chickens, beef, cows, pigs, sheep, every meat in order to uh, make them grow as fast as possible and um, as plump as possible and to get them then slaughtered and quickly onto our dinner tables. And I've noticed these advertisements at the train stations by the medical profession, you know, trying to limit the amount of antibiotics that uh, people ask for when they're ill. But that hasn't been the problem. The problem has been the livestock industry, which has massively overused antibiotics. And therefore, when they do that, the bacteria in the animals and in the meat can exchange bits of DNA... They call it a DNA cassette in which they exchange between bacteria and that makes them resistant to any antibiotics that have been used. Because bacteria have a sex life, whether you, don't, you probably don't realise it, but bacteria can have a sex life and they exchange bits of um, DNA uh, called a um, plasmid. Why haven't there been controls on the industries 
to limit or to measure what they're actually using? I don't know all the details of that, but I do remember that um, the reason why nothing had been done is because the Europeans said that if they did any sort of controls on their livestock industry, especially chicken industry, that would put them at a massive disadvantage with other countries that were using antibiotics. So they refused to do it, and then America refused to do it for the same reason. They said they would put their livestock industry at a massive disadvantage in terms of cost and um, profits profitability so none of the um, major countries developed countries would do anything about this problem you've been doing research coral and you've found and i'm quite sure it's been around for a long long time what you call new old technology that can fight the superbugs can you explain what it is well it's called phage therapy and what it is is uh, the proper name is actually they're using bacteriophages and what they do is they are a virus that just attack bacteria. They don't attack our normal cells in animals. They'll only attack bacteria because they've got to match up the injection material, the injection proteins. They've got to match up with the receptor protein in the bacteria. And so these phages, uh, they just stick onto the bacteria and then inject a little small piece of DNA or RNA into the bacteria and they take, are able to take over the control of the um, synthesis of their own particles of morphages inside the bacteria. Uh, they stop the bacteria making its own proteins and then they'll release hundreds of these, their own, of the phages and the bacteria is lysed. So it, it's a way of killing the bacteria. They've got enzymes in the phages also that can cut up the bacteria DNA. So they can use this as a, as a way of especially attacking... There's a lot of um, bacteria now that are totally resistant to virtually all the antibiotics we have. And this would be a way of tackling this problem. This has been known for 100 years. Yeah, well, it was developed by a Russian and a Frenchman in 1915. They discovered these phages. They're found in funny places, like in all the sewerage or where there's outlets. Wherever there's bacteria growing, you'll find these phages because they live off these, these bacteria. And so they found them, yeah, in 1915 and worked on them and realised they could be a really useful means of attacking bacterial infections. But what happened in 1940, or when um, they discovered penicillin in about the 1930s, and during the war... The U.S. went into massive production of penicillin. And so I've seen a film of this, and I didn't realise the extent of it. And it was in order to fight all the infections in people being shot and wounded in World War II, as compared with World War One, the U.S. went into this massive production of penicillin, like huge factories with huge vats of bacteria growing in order to produce the penicillin. So they all stopped using or any development whatsoever of phages, except in Russia. That's why I said it was an old new technology. Except in Russia and Georgia, because it had initially been a Russian who had discovered these phages, they kept working on them because they didn't have access to um, penicillin. And so they have kept uh, working on phages and they've got research facilities in Russia, Georgia in particular, and in Poland, in which they use to treat people with a, a, any sort of infection of the skin or any one of the resistant bacterial infections people get, and especially also cholera with Vibrio and um, Staphylococcus and Streptococcus.
And it's fairly successful. Yes, it's been extremely successful. But because, you know, there was the Cold War against Russia, Soviet Union, none of this research got translated into English. And so it was sort of cut off and totally isolated. But just because of this massive problem we've got with um, the, the bacteria that are now resistant to all antibiotics, suddenly in 2009 they translated into English, Western scientists translated into English all these documents and research papers uh, that had been in Russian and put out a whole volume on just these phages and, and the usefulness of them. And what's been happening here in Australia? Is it in use in Australia? Well, yes, because I found some research in which a, a doctor in... Well, they've done research in Adelaide at Queen Elizabeth Hospital because they had a patient with really severe chronic sinusitis, which they couldn't cure, which was resistant to all known antibiotics. And they just gave her a nasal rinse with these phages as part of the rinse. It um, cured it. It was a resistant um, golden staph, which is really, really difficult to get rid of, and, and cured her. Also, now, also, they're just beginning, they've got money to research at Westmead Hospital in Sydney because what happens also with older women, you get a urinary tract infection. It's very common and very difficult to treat. And people, you know, people without sort of treatment of these bacterial infections, they can die from it. It's so difficult to cure. Anyway, they treated this woman with um, resist, multiple resistant urinary tract infection, and that was really successful. And so they've now got research money to develop, to target E. coli and Krebsiella infections, which cause sepsis in um, intensive care patients. I mean, that's beginning to happen, but it's um, the reason why the um, pharmaceutical companies haven't gone down this path is because they can't patent phages, phages, sorry. They can't patent them because they're live, they're live viruses. So they won't invest money in, in this process. So that's the it's going to have to be taken up by government bodies and funded because, um, yeah, the, the pharmaceutical companies can't make money out of it. But we're going to need more and more of it, I think, with um, the multiple resistance bacteria infections that people get, especially in a hospital setting. And it sounds like sooner rather than later with the, the problems in all hospitals, you have people now saying, I don't want to go to hospital. It's going back to sort of the 19th century where people got sick when they went to hospital. Yes, because you've got so many antibiotic-resistant bacteria floating around in the, um, in the hospital. Yes, it's a real problem. But these phages are very specific. They've not got a broad spectrum like um, penicillin or the anti other antibiotics, normal bacterial antibiotics. So they're going to ha you're going to have to grow up the bacteria that, and take a sample of where of the person who's, and where it's infected, take a sample of the bacteria and then try and test these phages against the bacteria to make sure that it lyses the bacteria. So it's going to be a bit labour-intensive, but it's the only way we're going to be able to survive this onslaught. It's a very interesting path and sort of a, a way we can combat these infections. And I think governments are going to have to take up this issue and fund public bodies and to do this research. You'll probably also need a, a different number of phages to attack a particular problem as well. Because they're so specific, you have to make sure that it's attacking bacterium. And it'll differ from person to person and from infection to infection. And I suppose you've got to train the scientists or the technicians to, to work on these. Yeah. Once it's sort of got a, there's a production, and, and the way they present the phages or give them as a treatment, 
they're quite stable. Like you can make them into pills and dry them out. You could even do it as a liquid. You can even present them as a, a sort of an impregnation on a on a gauze to put over your skin if, if, with with burn treatments or any sort of infection on the skin. And it's extremely extremely useful for infections sort of replacements of parts in the body like hip replacements where the bacteria tend to grow on the the metal replacement they're extremely useful for that because it's in that case it's not called phage therapy it's called biocontrol and you can use these phages to attack those infections which are becoming an also an increasing problem in, in surgery replacements of parts in the body that that um, people need like or hip replacements yeah and there's a famous case i just found out by a um a jazz bassoon player named alfred gertler i don't know what when this happened but he got a bacterial infection in his bones after breaking an ankle and the doctors in the united states told him he would have to have his foot cut off amputated because um, they had no antibiotics that could destroy the bacteria and he and he refused and he apparently went to bed for four years until he went to Georgia, near Russia, and they treated his infection with um, phage therapy, and he was totally recovered. <laughs> so, yeah, good on Alfred for resisting the doctor's temptation to amputate his ankle, his foot. It's just a shame that it's taken so long in the West because of the the power, I suppose, of the pharmaceuticals, to get this up and running. Yeah, yes, it's it's um it's taken well maybe at least fifty, sixty years before they've even considered this pathway. But it's because of this whole problem of the pharmaceutical companies needing to make a mint of money out of out of it because these phages are actually sort of alive viruses. So they they and you can't you shouldn't be able to patent them. So they they think they are not going to be able to um. They won't be able to make enough money out of them. So that's the problem. Well, if antibiotics aren't working for humans, what's happening in the animals that they're feeding antibiotics to? Not sure about that situation. If they are also succumb to antibiotic-resistant bacteria... You'd think they would, wouldn't you? I suppose there's a certain loss anyway. They don't care. They just throw them away. But if mm. they can reduce you know, the life of a chicken, I think they can grow a from chick to um, fully grown adult chook in about six weeks now with all the injections that they give them and so pumping them in their growth pattern. Well, they don't care if they lose a few of them, I'm sure. I don't know what's going to happen with the, uh, with the livestock industry. Something has to, to occur. Yeah, it's a massive problem. We don't know what we're eating in the meat. I mean, we don't know what they've been treated with, what, how many uh, antibiotics they've been treated with. But it's a problem for us as well as the animals. I think if people... Many people in the world knew just what happens to animals. They, they mightn't be eating them anymore. We'd all become vegans, I think. Probably that's the only way we can, we can have a healthy life in the end. I'm sure you'll be hearing about phages in the future, and that's coral winter. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on... What's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen... 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. In April, a day-long symposium was held in Melbourne titled In the Eye of the Storm, Palestine and the New Media. And the event was chaired by Brian Dorr, who needs no introduction. 
There were two keynote speakers, both Palestinians and both living in the US. Ali Abedemina, the co-founder of the Electronic Intifada, and Ramsay Baroud, a journalist living in the US, as I said. In the next week, I'll be playing their content of the day, together with that of Paul Duffel from the Peace and Conflict Studies Centre at Sydney University. So today, we hear from Ali. I've had the privilege of going last on each of these panels, which uh, makes my job much easier because the previous speakers, Jake, and I'm very happy to, to meet you finally, having read about your struggle from afar, and we've even published a few things about it on the Electronic Intifada, and Paul uh, for laying out so clearly the logic of BDS. And so what I want to say will uh, kind of touch on some of the issues that uh, we've, we've had in both uh, presentations so far. The basic condition, the basic condition for the maintenance of Israeli occupation, apartheid, and settler colonialism is that Israel has to maintain tremendous power over the Palestinians. There has to be a massive power imbalance. And the reason Israel it says it loves dialogue and endless negotiations is because they do not threaten the power balance. The logic of BDS is to change the balance of power, to make it not cost-free for Israel and its allies and the beneficiaries of Israel's crimes to continue to enjoy them without paying a cost. So BDS calls for action, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, whose goal is to impose a price on those who are complicit in Israel's oppression of the Palestinians. So unlike empty, endless dialogue, BDS is very threatening to the status quo, a status quo that Israel wants to preserve. This is why we see that the same sort of power that is being used to oppress Palestinians every day, or, or the, this accumulated power, is now being used to try to suppress the BDS movement precisely because it offers a path to change the balance of power. Because BDS is made up of nonviolent civil society uh, activities, not government activities, not uh, violence, although, of course, Palestinians have a right to armed struggle and resistance, but the particular BDS strategy deals with uh, civil action. It's been quite difficult for Israel to find ways to suppress it. When you actually explain BDS to people, you explain its goals, which are to advance human rights, it's very, very difficult to argue against that. So there have to be all sorts of strategies to try to undermine BDS, which include smearing people, and uh, certainly we've, we've heard about uh, that uh, from Professor Lynch regarding the smear of anti-Semitism, which has been used so many times that could take up a whole day's symposium easily. But another strategy we've talked about today is attempting to sell Israel positively. Very difficult to do because it's very hard to get people to focus on cherry tomatoes and high-tech when they can see what Israel is doing to Palestinians every day.
So a strategy that is being pursued with great vigor is uh, to try to silence people, silencing and censorship, particularly of the BDS movement. Now, what's incredible is how not new this is. It always seems new, but I was in Amman a few months ago, and there was an exhibition at Darat al-Funun, which is a wonderful arts center in Amman, uh, of work by the Palestinian artist Emily Jasset. It, and it included uh, on the wall blown-up clippings from the New York Times from the 1960s, from the World's Exposition. I can't remember exactly when it was. It was in the mid-60s in New York, where uh, there was a, the Jordanian Pavilion, which had a display about the West Bank and the refugees in 1948, and the incredible bullying effort by pro-Israel groups to shut it down and to demand the boycotts of the Jordanian Pavilion and to get local politicians to denounce it and uh, so on and so forth. And, you know, it really could be happening today. Uh, so it's important to maintain the historical memory of how this kind of thuggery and censorship has really been there uh, from the very start. But we see the, the censorship efforts really taking an alarming turn in that they attack the very basic rights which are supposed to define a free society and a democracy. And we see a global epidemic of censorship or a free speech emergency when it comes to the question of Palestine. We've seen what's happening at Sydney University. I was, by the way, very impressed by that article in the Australian, in even the Australian, about my uh, visa issue, and I will be interested to know if the university ever answers the question. Without going into great detail, I can say that the kind of corporatization of universities is so closely related to this censorship because as universities become businesses, they think and behave like businesses where image and brand is everything, controversy is bad for business. Ideas that challenge the status quo are bad for business. You want uh, fee-paying middle-class families to feel safe sending their children to your university, and ugly controversies are not good for business. And so we see this managerial thinking really infecting every element of how universities react to this. And this was certainly true with the way the University of Illinois handled Stephen Salaita. And when we started to delve into the emails through freedom of information requests, we saw that these people were thinking only like fundraisers and business people and had no regard whatsoever for, for the uh, uh, basic things that, of course, the university claims to support, like academic freedom and intellectual independence and so on. It just was not at all a factor in their internal discussions. It wasn't there at all. It was about pleasing the powers that be, pleasing the donors, and, and so on. Uh, and that's true in the UK, where the, where, or, or I suspect it's true in the UK, where the University of Southampton has, for the second year in a row, censored, uh, banned a conference on Israel and international law that is being addressed, uh, or was supposed to be addressed by Israeli professors and others, on the grounds of health and safety. So this real abuse, abuse of health and safety laws as a form of censorship. And in the United States, we see a systematic attack 
on the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement from politicians, political leaders, and legislators. Uh, Hillary Clinton gave uh, the most revolting speech you can imagine to APAC, the Israel lobby group, uh, a week or so ago, in which she said that the BDS movement is, you know, anti-Semitic and that she, as president, would fight it uh, to the hilt. Uh, but she's not alone, of course. We've seen state legislatures, the first one being Illinois, where I live, uh, actually legislating to try to... They can't outlaw BDS, and I'll say more about why they can't do that in a minute, but to try to smear it. You know, you get headlines in the paper saying, Illinois passes anti-BDS law. Or, well, what, what they're actually doing is passing laws. In Illinois, they passed a law that says that it's so ironic because the state pension fund is now barred by law from investing in... I, I learned that you call that a super in Austra Australia. All right, so the Illinois super, I'm going to use that term. Uh, <laughs> A term that nobody would understand in the United States. <laughs> so the Illinois State Pension Fund is barred by law from investing uh, in companies. It must divest from companies that have divested from Israel or taken other boycott-related re actions. So Illinois, because the law was passed last year, the Illinois Pension Board just last week published a blacklist of 11 companies from which it must divest, including G4S. <laughs> so, you know, the irony is that in order to protest divestment from G4S, the state of Illinois is, must divest from or is barred from investing in G4S. The serious point here, though, is that, you know, the Human Rights Watch, not a radical organization by any means, particularly when it comes to Palestine, but to give them credit, they published a landmark report in January that said that companies cannot fulfill their human rights obligations if they have any business whatsoever with the settlements. In other words, what they're saying is there's no ethical way to do business in Israeli settlements. The only way to be ethical and to comply with human rights standards is to end all business with Israeli settlements. And that was really a new position for Human Rights Watch. They published a fantastic report that really details the way any business with settlements contributes to serious violations of Palestinian rights. So really what Illinois and now six other states are saying is that they are going to punish companies that respect human rights, that you must be willing to violate human rights in order to uh, draw investment from the Illinois Pension Fund, which is bankrupt anyway. Illinois is one of the most financially insolvent states in the United States, but that's another issue. New York is considering a law which goes even further. It requires the state to keep a blacklist of individuals and companies that are engaged in boycott BDS-related activity. This, I think, is you know, unprecedented since the McCarthy era, where the state is going to just put your name on a list because you might have written an op-ed uh, or you might have been involved in a campaign where you support BDS. And the language in the law is very broad. So 
there's really nothing to say that just writing an article in a newspaper might not get you on this official state blacklist with which the state is barred from doing business. This law, I think, is still in process. But the important point is that if such a law passes, and there were clauses within the Illinois law that did not make it into law because civil rights organizations said we will challenge them. You know, if that law passes in New York, it's very clear that there will be a constitutional challenge. You know, in the United States, we have a Bill of Rights. I was surprised to learn that Australia has no Bill of Rights, and uh, basic rights, basic individual rights are not defined clearly in, in the Australian Constitution or Australian law. But the United States has a Bill of Rights, and one of the most important elements or the most cherished elements is the First Amendment, the right to free speech. And this is often misunderstood. Uh, the right to free speech is the right to free speech free from government inter intervention. The First Amendment prevents the government or other public bodies, so including public universities, from restricting your right to free speech. And boycott is a constitutionally protected right in the United States. This goes back to a case that began in 1966 in the town of Port Gibson, Mississippi, where a, the NAACP, the, uh, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, called for a boycott of white-owned businesses in Port Gibson, Mississippi, because of the town's racist policies and, the, and these businesses' racist policies. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court. It took until 1982, but in 1982, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that, well, the case was that the businesses sued the NAACP. They said, we're losing business because you called for a boycott. You owe us damages. In 1982, in this court, uh, case, Claiborne, uh, NAACP versus Claiborne, the Supreme Court ruled that boycott, uh, that a boycott called in order to affect social, political, uh, or economic change is a form of free speech that deserves the highest protection of the First Amendment. And, of course, we know that boycotts are celebrated in U.S. history, the Montgomery bus boycott. Everyone has heard the story of Rosa Parks. So the attack on the BDS movement is an attack on the most fundamental rights of free speech. And if this is happening in the U.S., which has these constitutional protections, then we see this going even further in countries like the U.K. and France. In France, which I've written a lot about at the Electronic Intifada, people are now being arrested for wearing T-shirts that say boycott apartheid Israel or for holding protests at supermarkets saying don't buy Israeli goods, as people did during the struggle against apartheid South Africa. And in the UK, we see the government trying to intimidate democratically elected local councils by threatening them with financial sanctions and lawsuits if they vote democratically not to do business with companies profiting from Israeli human rights abuses. And we see Israel and its lobbying organizations leading this attack on free speech in a number of ways, including 
lobbying at universities as is happening at the University of California to get them to adopt official definitions that basically make criticism of Israel or anti-Zionism a form of anti-Semitism, basically hate speech, which would then be subject to disciplinary proceedings and certainly would be speech that is ostracized. And that effort is ongoing now at the University of, of California and other campuses. But we also see the Israeli state leading direct efforts to sabotage and attack the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, including through covert action. And this is not, you know, a, uh, a sort of a speculative thing. During Israeli Apartheid Week, we saw, for example, massive denial of service attacks against a number of BDS-related websites. And just a few weeks before, Israel had announced a cyber war against the BDS movement. Uh, and most disturbingly, just a few days ago in Jerusalem, Israeli newspaper Yediata Ahronot held an anti-BDS conference which was addressed by all the great and the good in Israel. Uh, and the Israeli minister, Israel Katz, called for what he called targeted civil eliminations of BDS activists. This is chilling language that resembles what Israel calls targeted killings. It's not clear if he actually meant killing BDS activists, but that can't be ruled out in terms of the language he used. But what the Israeli uh, interior minister, Arya Derry, said was that Israel may revoke the residency of Omar Barghouti, one of the co-founders of the BDS movement. So we're seeing Israel begin to openly move in, uh, you know, to, to treating people calling for boycott, divestment, and sanctions as quote-unquote terrorists through using a brute force and coercion and uh, other forms of subterfuge and sabotage. The good news, and I'll end on this note, is that the BDS movement is more than uh, 10 years old. Paul mentioned some of the victories uh, with Veolia and G4S, and I could list many, many more, far more than, than we have time to cover. And the attacks have not slowed the momentum. And I don't think they will. But we do have to be very aware that these attacks are going to increase. And as people get more into BDS activism in Australia, you're going to have to prepare for more of what's happening at Sydney University. Uh, you will see your government, this is something you can take to the bank or deposit in your super, that your government will behave no differently from the UK government, from France, and from the state legislators in Illinois you have the benefit of foresight, so you can prepare to fight back. Listening to Elliot makes you even more determined to be part of BDS. That's Ali Abermina, who is the co-founder, I think it's co-founder or founder of Electronic Intifada. And he was one of the guest speakers at the Palestine Symposium by the Australian organisation supporting Palestine, and it was called Palestine and the New Media. So that's all for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock, but stay tuned for Done by Law, and I'll say bye for now.